Laura and our girls are out of town this weekend, so we are at home making poor decisions in how we eat. So that's how my weekend's gone so far, but uh, it's a joy to open up the Word of God with you this morning, and if you will, go ahead and make your way over to Genesis chapter 2. And as you do, uh, you ever come across those round mirrors? I think they're used for makeup, and they've got these, I mean, you look at it on the one side, and everything looks fine, right? And, and then you, you flip it around, and it's, it's like you zoomed in on your face 400 times uh, on the back side, and it magnifies it so much, you can see like giant pores in your face. You're like, are those really there? I had no idea. It's, it's kind of an awful experience to go through. And, and if you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, then you've never seen one, because you don't forget these kind of things once, once you've done it. Now, that, that mirror right there is, is kind of how everything that we've studied so far relates to everything we're about to study here in, in Genesis, Genesis 2. And, and right, uh, so everything in chapter 1 of Genesis, and, and, and thanks to the, that French printer, Stephanus, right, everything up to Genesis 2, 3, right, that's like the normal size mirror. And, and, and now we're flipping around to that zoomed in, all the detail, uncomfortable distance kind of thing that's, that's going to be happening here. Um, <clears throat> And it's the same story. It's, it's the creation story again, but zoomed in on one little area of creation, namely the creation of, of man, uh, Adam and Eve, which we'll, we'll get to the rest of that next week. Now, um, so all the details, pores and all. So uh, anyway, uh, only, you know, unlike the, the face mirror, you know, in Genesis 2 here, what we're seeing is this beautiful creation. We're seeing perfection, and I say unlike it because we tend to notice all of our errors when we look at that thing, but we, we just see the beauty of perfection of creation here, uh, <clears throat> the good life, the way things are meant to be, the way that we, we long for the return of Christ because we long for it all to be set right. It's the way we want to see it again, and, and, and that's what we're seeing here in Genesis 2. So that's, that's just a wide angle. Uh, we're going to pick up in Genesis 2, verse 4. Like I said, I've been eating lots of sugar, and uh, for some reason my eyes don't work as good when I'm eating lots of sugar. So, I guess I should change that. Uh, Genesis 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of the good of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden, the, Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pashan. It was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, uh, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows around Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, here in chapter 2, you give us more detail about how you created us. And we want to understand this better. We want to understand you better, our purposes. And so please enlighten our minds and open our hearts so that your word will inform our thoughts and direct our steps. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, hopefully you remember, I believe it was the first week that we talked about the structure of Genesis, that uh, if you really want to divide it down, you have the, the introduction period, and then you have these uh, four instances of that phrase you see in verse 4 right in front of you, right? These are the generations, and there's, there's nine more of those, ten of those total, and this is the very first one. Uh, the next one we won't see until chapter 5 of Genesis. And so until we get to chapter 5, uh, God is teaching us about these uh, events that include and follow his works of creation. And that's kind of the generation, the era that we're in here. Now, uh, you've got the text before you. There's a little detail. I, I wonder if you noticed this when, you, when we were reading it even, right? As, as we moved from the wide-angle story of creation, everything up to this point to this more detailed, more intimate creation account, uh, I want you to notice something about the name of God that we've seen here. Look in, uh, right, uh, verse 3 here in Genesis 2, it just says, just God, right? You can keep going backwards, and all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 1, 34 more times you're going to see the name of God, just God. It comes from uh, the Hebrew Elohim. <clears throat> now, I want you to scan the passage that we began today, and if you go forward, do you notice anything different? It's not just God. It's the Lord God. It's from the Hebrew, Yahweh Elohim. It's, uh, you know, the, the name Elohim, the just God that we saw before, signifies God as a sovereign creator. And, and so it fits the wide-angle creation theme that we've been looking at. But, but now, going forward in the section, we are learning how God relates to us personally. And, and so God, through Moses, ties in his covenant name, his redemptive name of Yahweh here. And, and so over and over, we're going to see this. Yahweh Elohim, or, or the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, over and over. Now later you'll, you'll notice that the only exception to this is in, in chapters 3 and 4, the only exception is during the conversation between Eve and the serpent. It's very interesting that it is an exception, uh, because here Eve is, uh, as she leans into this temptation, mindfully doesn't use this relational covenant name of God. She reverts back to the, the more general term. Uh, and we'll look at that in more detail when we get there. Now, now in verse 5 here, as, as we get caught up on, on the situation, right, it's kind of a reset uh, going forward on this detail thing. And we see a, a lot of no's happening there in verse 5. There is no bush of the field. There are no small plants. There's no rain. And there's no man to actually work the ground. So you got those four no's. But, and we read this, and it's easy to think, well, didn't God already make plants before? Like, wasn't that back on day three? Uh, yes, he certainly did make plants at that point. But God is here describing an, an untended condition of the land before he created man. Uh, you know, this refers more specifically then to the, the sort of plants that need tending and cultivating. Things like wheat and barley and olives and legumes and all those kind of things that need tending to really flourish, right? Our college here, that's pretty much why it exists is because some plants need tending. Now, the, the whole point here is, is that creation is made in such a way that it, it needs man to rule and to subdue it. We're also told here that before the miracle of rain, 
that the early plants were watered with this mist coming up, and I know we hear that, and you see something magical kind of happening, mystical, looking right. But, you know, if you follow that little number, you look in there, right? Verse 6, and, and you see right next to the mist thing, uh, you follow it down to the notes below it, you, you get the idea here is that what it's talking about is, is probably a spring water coming up from the ground, maybe flooding the area, something uh, like that is, is what's going on here. Uh, now, now, let's move on to, to verse 7 here, where we learn three things about the nature of man. The first thing we learn is that man is God-formed. God-formed. Now, uh, many years ago, our, our youngest daughter was in the kitchen, and she's making these, these Rice Krispie treats, and she was going to bring them to us, and we all expected, oh, we're going to get little squares of Rice Krispie treats, because that's what any normal person would do. Uh, but she shows up, and she has used the Rice Krispie treats like Play-Doh and shaped them into these 3D things. Uh, there was a ball... One was the shape of a rooster, and for Laura, she had shaped one into an actual coffee mug with a handle and everything, and, and she stood there, and, and she's showing them, and she so proudly says, I, I made them with my hands, and we all look at her hands, and they're grubby and gross, and we, no one knows when she last washed them, so we're terrified about that, but, but, but more to the point here, the reason she told us that, that detail, right, I made them with my hands, uh, is, is that she, was, she wanted us to know, like, there was a lot of thought put in this. This was intentional. I was thinking of you when I did this, uh, when I formed these with my own hands. And, and that's the idea of something being formed. There's an intentionality to it. And, and here we learn that God, like a skilled potter, is you know, shaping the clay. Here's God designing us, forming us with this, <clears throat> this special attention that nothing else in creation is, is explained that way. There, there is intentionality to your design that you, you, you might say we're artesian. You might not say that too, but, right, we're Artesian. And, and the more we discover about, about just the human body over the years, and this is one of the neat things, is we're discovering things about uh, DNA and, and microcellular structures, and I don't actually know what that means, but I've been told it's amazing, you know, how the brain works, all these things about our bodies, right, the more amazed we are at, at the way God formed us and shaped us and made us. I know personally we, we tend to be very negative about our own bodies, but, you know, we we, we bear the weight of the fallen world, that, that's true, but we really are masterpieces of the Lord's amazing design. It's incredible, really. Which is why it's, it's, it's so surprising here to learn that the first man, right, what is he formed out of? Not, not from gold, not from diamonds, not from something good like guacamole even, right? He's formed from dust of the ground, dirt, one of the most worthless things you can possibly find. It's even said dust, right? It's not like the dirt you buy at Home Depot that's unusually expensive, right? But dust of the ground. We are dust of the earth, and at the same time, we are the crown of creation. I think it would do us all well to remember that both of those things are, are absolutely true when it comes to us, right? Our, our origin as dust is what led Calvin to say, uh, he must be excessively stupid who does not hear learn humility. And so first, we are formed by God. There's intentionality. The second thing we learn about the nature of a man here is that we are God-breathed. Look at verse 7, middle of verse 7. Uh, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, Yes, animals are creatures too that are living, but mankind alone received the breath of life from God. There is this face-to-face -face incredible intimacy in the way that God has created us. You know, here is God giving of himself, right? He, he gives the magnificent mystery that is your life. 
And with this breath of God in the closing words of verse 7, we learn the third thing, that man became a living creature. And you and I, we are distinguished from the animals because we have a soul that will last forever, right? We are distinguished because we have the ability to, to know God, to relate to God, to worship God. We, we have the responsibility to obey God. And, and so, those three things there. Now, now, now this, this living creature, this, this man that God has just created now needs a place to dwell, a, a place to live. And so God... You know, God himself cultivates this lush garden within a, a region called Eden. And we're told here it's in the east. East, east of what, though, if you've ever wondered that, right? Well, it's, it's east of where Moses is when he's writing this, which is believed to be in, in Sinai at the time. So east of that. Now, now you know, Eden, as a word, it, it means something along the, lights of, uh, along the lines of uh, a delight. Something that is delightful. Now, it's interesting, when it gets translated into Greek, it becomes this word, uh, paradisios. Anyone want to take a guess what English word we get from paradisios? Yeah, paradise, right? Which, of course, brings us, takes us back to the, the promise that Jesus makes to the, the faith-filled criminal that is nailed to the cross next to him. You remember, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, which really gets to the point of why Eden is a paradise. I know that when we picture it, we tend to think of some tropical place with fruit and, you know, animals walking about and maybe talking, right? It's, it's not just the weather there. It's not the water. It's not just the fruit-bearing plants. It's the intimate presence of God that is in the garden, right? The, the, the presence of man and God together. And, and, and that's what Jesus was promising on the cross to the criminal, you know, most, most prominently anyway, was, was, yes, right, for the criminal on the cross, but, but also to me and you. When we, like the man on the cross, place our absolute dead weight trust in the Lord Jesus. It's that presence with God. In verse 9, we learn God filled his garden with many trees and that they are told to be both pleasant to look at and good for food. These are good trees. And now we learn of, uh, of two specific trees within that garden, right, that are going to shape the, the whole history of the world from this point forward. And the first tree is the tree of life. Now you might be like me, for many years of my life, I I used to think of that tree, the tree of life, as kind of like the, the legend of the Holy Grail, right? If someone could get a hold of that fruit and take a bite of it, you know, eat of it one time, they would irreversibly live forever. But it's more widely understood that continued eating from the tree of life is what would result in continued living. That the God removing Adam and Eve from its presence in Genesis 3.22 is about them continuing to eat from the tree of life and thus continuing in their, their sinful, separated state forever. And thus removing them from the garden is, is absolutely an act of mercy. Now the, the tree of life appears often in the, the future-oriented book of, of Revelation, right? The very last book in, in, in our, our, our scriptures here, in our Bibles, right? But most notably, Revelation 2-7, where we read, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We have this picture of going from one garden to another garden. Now the other tree of note is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll, I'll explain that a bit more when we get to verse 17 today. But uh, starting in verse 10 here, Moses explains that one, uh, one of, uh, you know, there's one big old river that goes through the garden, waters everything, right? And, and then it leaves and it splits into four different rivers is what's going on here. Now, now Moses then gives the name of these four rivers and the lands they're in and the valuable things that, that go up in there and, and what they all are. And, and, and all these details were incredibly helpful for the Israelites to have an idea of where this was. 
He's giving them names they recognize. Oh, it's over there. It'd be like, we're like, you know, the salt mines out in near Hayes, you know, you'd, you'd be like, okay, I kind of know where that is at least. Uh, and, and that's what's going on here. However, for us, it's not as helpful. And, and here's why, because we only know the location of two of the four rivers, right? The Tigris and the Euphrates. And after the great flood, who even knows if they're still following the paths they originally were following? That happens all the time with rivers. And so we have this question, I know that's always our curiosity, where is the Garden of Eden today? Can we go there? One answer is it's, it's 126 miles west of here in Lucas, Kansas. Uh, there is a tourist attraction there that has called itself the Garden of Eden. I've not been there, but I did look it up. It's got a four and a half star rating, so next time you're going that way, maybe check it out, let me know. Uh, some well-known explorers throughout history have found places they believe are the location of Eden. Uh, they're tropical islands. I've looked some of those up. They actually look like what I would picture it to be. Uh, some, you know, thought South America. One claimed it was the North Pole after finding some fossils there. More reasonable guesses would be closer to modern-day Iraq. And I know we, we think about, yeah, but if it's there, we have satellites now. Surely we would see it from the satellites. Maybe, but probably not if it too is under the curse, and it is. Perhaps after so much time, it has dried up and looks just like the rest of the Middle East by this point. I, I don't know. I, I can't say anything definitively, but I'll, I'll tell you this. Don't waste another day of your life looking for it, if that's what you've been doing so far. Uh, right? It's, it's, that's not really our destination, is not to get back to that. The Lord's going to put everything back. We'll experience what it was like, but we don't need to get back to that actual one. Uh, now this brings us to verse 15, which tells us what God intends for man to do. Uh, if you look at what it says, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Uh, let's consider work first and mostly. Uh, the call to work comes before the fall. And I know at this point in your life, you've probably heard that a hundred times. You've heard it a hundred times because we always kind of forget that. We hate work. We, you know, we, we fall back into that. And, and it's so important, right? Because it helps you know that work is not a consequence of sin. Right? That's not why it exists. Right? And that means that work is something, it's, it's not to be avoided, it's not just to be reluctantly done. Work is good for you, something we should seek out. It, it is ordained by God for, for you to work in one way or another. It, it is God-ordained and fulfills the, the mandate that we saw back in Genesis 1.28 to subdue and have dominion over the earth. And for Adam and Eve, we, we see that it's, that it's gardening, it's, it's farming, right? That's how they subdued the earth. For you and I, it's probably going to look different. It may be sitting at a computer doing something or helping people to heal or selling insurance or raising children or, or maybe also tending a garden of some sort. <clears throat> now, if you're like most people, you really have trouble making sense that, that, God, or sorry, that work is good and, and not nearly, merely just this necessity like, oh, I guess we have to do that, right, because I've got to pay the bill somehow. Uh, and the best analogy I've ever heard trying to think through what was work like for Adam and Eve? How did they view it? And, and someone once explained to me, they would have viewed it more like the way you and I view a hobby. Something that is hard, something that takes skill, something that takes time and effort, but something they actually enjoy, that they like, and that just, just gives you a taste of it, right? Um, and, 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 you know, whatever it might be, you can think of photography or crafting or woodworking or baking or coding, thing, things that you just enjoy. Now, it wouldn't be exactly the same because you and I even think about those things and we think about how difficult and often the futility of both work and hobbies can be and that is a result of the fall which we'll again see in chapter 3 in more detail now but you know just for a moment can you imagine 
the, the joy of work when the world gets set right again. Can you imagine if your tools don't break? If weeds aren't taking over the garden? Can you imagine if you don't have incompetent or gossipy co-workers? Can you imagine not having anxious due dates hanging over your head or the network doesn't crash, you don't ever pull out un, you know, undercooked bread or whatever? Just the joyous experience of easy productivity in the presence of God. I mean, that's the idea of work that we, we long for. But that doesn't mean we sit back and do no work until then. E- even today, you and I can honor the Lord in, in how you approach your work. Ken Jones does a beautiful job of calling out our, our, our sinful attitudes towards work, and he, he says it like this. He says, It is because of our fallen state that some are lazy and refuse to work, while others are slothful and careless in their work. Sin causes some to view work selfishly, solely from a financial perspective. In other words, they have little regard for the service they may be able to render to God or the glory due to him. They view work only as a way to get money and thus stuff for themselves. Do you feel the weight of that? I think that view sneaks in to one degree or another in in most of our lives. Now listen to what Martin Luther had to say about the work you do. He said, your work is a very sacred matter. God delights in it, and through it, he wants to bestow his blessings on you. Or you know, with quite a bit more weight than Martin Luther, the words of of the Lord in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And that includes the work that you do. No matter how frustrating it seems in some days, no no matter how far it seems from spiritual work, right? It is good work to be done, to be done to the glory of God. Now the other instruction given to Adam here is to keep the garden. Keeping is primarily about guarding, also care, but guarding, right? That's that's why the the, the goalie in soccer is often referred to as the keeper, right? Well, he, he guards the goal and... Some of you look at me like, I don't know what soccer is. It's just the most popular sport on the planet, right? For you, Quidditch, right? Quidditch also has a keeper. You can keep up with that. Uh, Or a beekeeper, right? You guard and care for the bees. You protect them. That's kind of the idea here. And and, and what it looks like for Adam to guard in this time period is hard to understand, right? Guard from what exactly? Uh, We know the the serpent comes in, the devil, Um, for us, we, we certainly know that we are called to protect our families. We are card, called to guard, the, guard the, the gospel, right? There are a number of things that we can apply this to. Now, this brings us to our last two verses. This is what is theologically referred to as the covenant of works, the first covenant, uh, which are our doctrinal statement, the Westminster Confession of, of Faith, which we almost got to in, in Sunday school today. I think we probably will later. Uh, and chapter 7 explains this, saying uh, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him, to his posterity, right, all those descending from him, uh, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Um, Now we tend to to always focus on the restrictive commands we see in scripture. It's just kind of how our minds work. But do notice here that uh, it begins actually with a permissive command, verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. There's a a positive aspect. Here are all these incredible trees. 
How many? I don't know. Sure sounds like a bunch of trees, though, growing a bunch of different fruits. Uh, and, And they're all there. Adam is invited to eat of these. In other words, God has provided everything that Adam actually needs. He's not desperate for food at any point, right? He has everything he needs. And then, and then at this point, right, we also get the, the prohibitive command, right? Verse 17, look at it. The, the Lord God says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? Pretty simple. Don't eat the fruit of this one single tree. You wonder, why is it? Is it poison? Is it bad? Why did God make a bad tree? That's, that's not it at all. Now, you, you kind of wonder, right, if, if Adam had continued to obey, uh, would he and Eve still be just living it up in Eden? Is that would be the condition right now? No. You see, it's understood that this is a, a sort of testing period right here. When, when, when Jesus later does obey perfectly, it's considered finished after a period of time, right, up to the cross. Now, now, now John Calvin explains this by saying that Adam's earthly life truly would have been temporal, yet he would have passed into heaven without death and without injury. And, and again, we'll get more into chapter 3 as we really get to the, the fall, the first sin actually occurring. Today, though, I do want you to understand what exactly the temptation that, that Adam and Eve are, are going to face here, right? Because for years, I honestly thought that, that the fruit of this tree, like I said, was, was some sort of poison, right? That, that causes the fall, as, as, as though that was the tree itself. But it, it's not really about the fruit itself. It's, you know, God could have labeled any tree in the garden, any tree at all, as the tree uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. He really could have because it's about the command of the Lord not to eat of that tree. Now, I also used to think that eating the fruit gave Adam and Eve knowledge of what good and evil was, right? As if they were wandering around, be like, I don't know if that's good or evil. And then they take a bite and suddenly they're like, oh, now I know, I can see. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it's not that, right? That, you know, that, that it's not moral discernment that they're picking up here. Um, however, to, you know, to, the, the call to obey God's command here tells us, right, that they already have moral discernment to begin with. Now, at the heart, this command to not eat the fruit of this tree is, is testing Adam and Eve's loyalty to God through obedience to God's command. The heart, it's really about whether they trust God. Whether, whether they will acknowledge God is the sole determiner of what is right and what is wrong. As Burkhoff says, the, the great question that had to be settled was whether man would obey God implicitly or follow the guidance of his own judgment. And so what happens when they disobey? What actually occurs when they take that full-hearted bite? Well, it's, it's not that they gain some new knowledge. It's that they have decided from this point forward, I will determine apart from God what is morally right and wrong. God, you say I can't eat of this tree? I don't care what you say. I, I will decide for myself. It's, we've seen this picture. Anyone who's been around little children have seen this. At some point, I, I will do what I want to do. It's, it's, it's moral autonomy. It's deciding truth without submission to God. It, it severs the relationship here because it severs the trust. And so Adam will determine truth for himself, specifically in, in regards to moral right and wrong. And, and we know this sort of moral relativism. Like, I don't know why, we tend to think this is new. This is not new. It's incredibly prevalent in our society, but it's not new, Right? 
But, but you and I, we know it because it is so prevalent now, right? It, it's the air we breathe every day. Frederick Nietzsche, the, the guy of uh, God is dead fame, right? He also said this, you have your way, I have my way. As for the right way, the correct way, and the only way, it does not exist. And that's, that's the philosophy of, of our era. That's the philosophy that's been the predominant one throughout all of history since this tree. You, you know the catchphrases for our era, right? I, I've got to speak my truth. Or you do you, right? Follow your heart, all those kind of things. And, and, and I know we, we often wonder, right? What, what would I have done if I were Adam and Eve's shoes? If I were there, if I'm the one standing before that tree, would I have eaten of the fruit? Well, well you and I, we have never seen nor stood before this tree. But we do face the temptation of this tree every single moment of our lives. Will God, through his word, determine for me what is right and wrong? Will I seek to obey God's word? Is, is that really the standard by which I want to live my life? Or will I disregard God and determine what is good myself? Will I determine what is evil myself? Are my own autonomous decisions? Or, or more likely, right, as we, we really see, am I going to let uh, my peers around me or, or, or whatever the, the overwhelming view of the culture is, is that going to be the new standard of what is right and wrong? Unfortunately, even in the church, we've leaned more and more that direction. L listen, without the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, yes, yes, you absolutely would have taken that reckless bite. And some days we still do. Now, at the very heart, original sin was for Adam to sidestep God. It was to sidestep God's word, it, you know, to sidestep his revealed will in, in order to become wise in his own foolish eyes. In absolute contrast, Jesus our Lord said in John, John 8.31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It will set you free. Even that we have trouble believing some days. Richard Phillips along these lines says, by prohibiting the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the covenant Lord showed that man is designed to flourish under his guidance and provision. True freedom takes place within God-designed boundaries, whether sexual morals, gender identity, marital duties, or any other form of biblical obedience. And we'll see it in chapter 3. I know I keep saying that. We will. But, but already, I, I want you to begin to observe how things went wrong. They failed to believe, one, that God is good. And two, that God is good and generous to them. And that is often the same struggle you and I have in our hearts, right? First part we're usually good with. Yeah, God's good, but I don't know if he's good to me, right? We, we hear it in the internal questions of our hearts. Why, why would God give me this sexual desire if I'm not permitted to act upon it? But why would God give me this desire for a child if he won't grant that desire? Why, why would God do this, right, and not do this, those kind of questions. When, when we don't trust God, we, we assume he's keeping the good stuff from us. We're like that kid that's been told, you know, don't stick the fork in the socket. Why not? I bet something awesome happens. Right? That's, that, that's kind of at the heart of what's happening here. And, and so this covenant of works, right, carried with it then this, this penalty for disobedience. You see it there. Uh, death, right? 
In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And this includes every aspect of death. So, of course, it involves natural death, right? Adam didn't die immediately. And it used to bother me, like, why didn't he die? He said he would die. He didn't die. Well, he did die eventually, right? He suffered death in the end. That there was judicial death, right? They lost righteousness. And certainly there's moral death. They and all who follow after them have sinful natures from, from this day forward. Sinful natures. And of course, the, you know, the prospect of eternal death in the form of what Jesus later refers to as hell. Including separation from God. You and I, we, we must look to Jesus Christ for our redemption. And yet here in this covenant of works, we, we learn that true life is enjoyed only in conformity to God's Revealed will. His word. Now you, you know, we, we know that Adam was tested in the Garden of Eden and, and he failed. But do you also know that when Jesus was tested in a different garden, the Garden of Gethsemane? Right? He's in the garden and the cross is still before him. It's future and he knows where it's supposed to be going. And, he, and he's sweating blood. Right? And Jesus considered all that he had to do in order to fulfill the broken covenant of works and thus accomplish salvation for us. Right? Do I want to do what I want to do at this point? Or am I going to do what the God, you know, the Lord, His Father is calling Him to do? Right? In that garden, Jesus prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Right? In other words, I don't, this doesn't sound fun. This is not a good path. Nevertheless, He goes on, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He trusted His Heavenly Father. He trusted Yahweh Elohim. The Lord God. You and I, we, we mourn Adam's disobedience. Let us also rejoice in, in Jesus' obedience. And we're going to see that all throughout chapter 2 here. And it's a beautiful thing because it accomplished, for, for you and I whose faith is in Christ, it accomplished salvation for us. And we'll stop right there. This, be honest, Genesis is choppy sometimes as far as where you stop, where you don't, that kind of thing. But uh, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, on this side of the fall, uh, it is hard and frustrating. Work, work is hard and frustrating. It often doesn't pay enough and requires too much of our lives. It can tempt us to compromise on honesty, tempt us to be lazy, or tempt us to make an idol of it. But work is still good and still good for us. Help us to view whatever work you've given us to do through the lens of your purposes Give us a, a vision for doing work, whether the paid work we do or work at home or helping or anything that would be under the broader sense of work. Give us, give us a vision for doing it in ways that honor you, that bring glory to your name. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the second Adam who succeeded where the first Adam failed. Thank you for accomplishing salvation for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.